I want to basically begin by saying that over the past few years, our culture, our current culture, has seen a massive move in the realm of information. I think it was like 1991. I was just reading the website. Um, I, I subscribed to Dig. All right, you guys know what that is? Yeah, Dig. And uh, one of the things I just read a couple of days ago was it was basically the top 20 websites that changed the world. All right? The first website that changed the world was the first one. I was astounded to find out that the first website that ever came online was 1991. Now, some of you probably don't remember that because you were this big, all right? Others of you might remember that to some degree. I have no clue about that because I, I, I don't even think I knew how to turn on the computer that much back then. But the point that I'm making is that information began to change radically since that particular day. So the world in which we live in today is, is completely obsessed with information, completely obsessed with communication. We communicate via cell phone, we instant message, we text. If you're doing that right now, please stop. Still love you. But we do uh, email. Some of you old timers are still actually using handwritten notes and putting postage stamps on them. And we have blogs. Um, we have websites that communicate information. Uh, we, we, we literally live in an information age. Some of you Twitter. Some of you are on Facebook and you've got a lot of friends. And these are all means and ways by which we communicate. All right? Some of you are like, Twitter? Yeah, twit. We twit. Yeah? Okay, you're like, what? Did he say a bad word? No. It's actually legit. All right. These are all means and ways in our culture in which we communicate. All ways in which our culture communicates with, with each other. The reality is, is that communication is basically an attribute that is given to us by God. We are created in the likeness and the image of God. God communicates. He's a communicating God within Himself. He's Trinity. We looked at this last week. That God in His Trinitarian nature, God Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they speak, they fellowship, they love, there's intimacy, there's knowledge amongst their ranks in the Trinity. And so God, as He creates us in His likeness and in His image, He also creates us with the capacity and really even the desire to communicate, to be a part of loving communication. This is the way, this is the means by which we get to know about each other, is we dialogue, we talk, we reveal things by the way that we communicate to people through verbal communication and other forms. So one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that God, because He is a triune God, because God is community with Himself, and that God speaks. God reveals Himself to His creation. This is beautiful. Because God doesn't have to communicate Himself to His creatures. He doesn't have to reveal His way to us, but He chooses to. Which really, in essence, reveals to us something about the nature and the character of God in that He is loving. God loves us because God loves His creation. God also reveals Himself to His creation. The picture that some of the theologians in the past, I think it might have been John Calvin, stated was something like this. We have eyes, but even if you have eyes and you could see, if you're in a room that's pitch black, even though your eyes may function properly, you still can't see. But it takes a miracle of grace for God to flip the switch on. 
or to bring you outside or to blow off the four walls or remove the ceiling so that now eyes you have can actually now begin to see reality. That's the beauty of what God does through this concept of revelation. The way that God reveals Himself amongst many is that He speaks. God communicates and reveals to us about Himself. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that we could know everything there is to know about God. Our knowledge of God will never be exhaustive. Meaning, we will never know all there is to know about God. If we did, then we would be on the same level as God. Our mind would we would, we're not going to ever have a comprehensive knowledge of who God is, but what God does is He reveals to us enough to demonstrate to us His beauty and to demonstrate to us enough about His character so that we would love Him and honor Him and worship Him and submit to Him and surrender our lives to Him and trust Him. Okay? Theologians call these the communicable and the incommunicable acts of God. There are certain things in which God is able to communicably speak forth, reveals to us about Himself. There's other things we will never understand. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. We're going to try to understand this and try to get the bigger picture as to why does God speak and reveal Himself. So the first question I want to ask in a series of several is, what is revelation? When we talk about revelation, what do we mean? It's simply this. Revelation is, next slide, Revelation is God, next slide, there we go, Revelation is God speaking forth or unveiling Himself. The word reveal comes from a Latin word which literally means to unveil or to remove uh, veils and to allow one to see. It's basically God saying, I will allow you to see who I really am. It's really a miracle of grace. It's really a, 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 it's an amazing reality because when you think about it in this light, there are people that maybe we want to get to know. There are certain people that we don't want to get to know, right? Um, and the people that we do want to get to know, the way that we do that is we talk. We communicate things to them about ourselves. Or maybe we exchange um, certain uh, compliments to each other. People that we don't want to get to know, People like we're a little bit freaked out by, we, we, we run from. We do everything that we can. We like block them out. We see them that they're like part of our Facebook friend. We cancel them. All right? Uh, we block their phone number on our cell phone. Uh, if they call, we hit the red button rather than the green button. Um, we, we do whatever we can to dodge any type of communication with that person because we don't want to reveal ourselves to them. We don't want them to get to know us. In the same way, what's beautiful about this is that God does not act in that way. In fact, quite the opposite. God reveals Himself. God allows us to see. And one of the several ways in which God does this, we'll begin to take a look at. So, the question that I want to ask next is, how does God reveal Himself? How does God reveal Himself? Theologians have basically broken it down into two main categories by which God reveals Himself. They break it down like this. There's natural revelation. Some will call it general revelation. The second of which is special revelation. General revelation, which we'll look at first, otherwise known as common grace or natural revelation, this is basically God's speaking to all peoples 
in all races, in all ages, all around the globe, equal information about Himself. That's what general revelation is. By virtue of its name, it's just that. It's general. Meaning there are certain things about God, in fact, enough things about God, that Paul's later going to communicate, there's enough information that God reveals to us about Himself, generally, that is enough to condemn us should we reject it. Romans chapter 1. Summarize. Is that God is good enough to reveal enough to all of creation, all of humanity about Himself for us to know something of His ways. Now, we're not going to know special things. We're not going to know about grace. We will know about law. And general revelation will teach us something of the fact that our conscience sometimes can feel condemned. General revelation will not reveal to us mercy. General revelation will not reveal to us God's grace. But it will reveal to us things like God's kindness, that He does take care of us. Here's some examples. One of the first ways in which general revelation reveals to us something of God is simply found in creation itself. Here's what Psalm 19 says, 1-4. through The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So take a look at verses 1-4 through again. Heavens declare, it proclaims, it speaks, and it reveals knowledge. All of those things. Speaking, revealing, declaring, all of which are basically found in the heavens and the earth, night and day. The fact that we have days and nights, the fact that we have stars that are bright and powerful and mind-blowing, all of these basically are means, the Bible tells us, in which God declares something of His greatness. Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 1, whereby he says this, For what can be known about God is plain. So there is a general knowledge in which we can have about God, all of us, just simply in creation. Is that uh, God has made it known to them. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So basically Paul makes a statement that what can be known about God in a general sense has been made known through the form of creation. But what it does reveal to us, verse 20 tells us very clearly, Namely, or in particularly, His power. So when you walk outside and you realize that God is a powerful God, maybe if you've ever been caught up in like a large thunderstorm, not the type we get here in California, but if I remember one time my wife and I, we were in Austria, and we were in this big tower over this lake, and this massive storm came through. And the thunder and the lightning was so loud so it literally scared us. We're sitting there thinking we're going to die. All right? It was so loud and it just, it literally shook the entire building that we're in. And it, it, it was freaky. But the reality was, we were reminding ourselves of voice, or verses where it says, like, the God of glory thunders. And what we were doing is we were reminding ourselves that God speaks even through phenomenal thunderstorms. And He tells us that He's powerful. That's what Paul says. And that he has a divine nature. Meaning that God is supernatural and powerful and he creates these things. So in other words, what creation teaches us is that A, not only is there a great God, but this great God deserves to be worshipped. Meaning he's divine. Powerful. He is God over above in all, all things. Okay. 
We'll look at this even more next week and the implications of this as next week we'll take a look at creation in particular. Namely, we'll be taking a look at the cheapest of God's creation, which is humanity. Made in the image of God, or otherwise known as imago Dei. Made in the image of God. The second way in which God reveals Himself is through conscience. Through the conscience. God speaks through our conscience. Here's what Romans 2.14 says. Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature, it's a natural sense, do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either accuse or excuse them. Here's what Paul's saying. Everybody in this world has a conscience. So if you have ever, ever made a judgment call that says, that's not right. I disagree with that. That's wrong. You're exercising something, actually, that is in the likeness of God. That God has given us a conscience whereby we can think and determine right or wrong. Now, sometimes, consciences can be uh, seared, as with a hot iron, the Bible says, and messed up in a skew. And that's why people can sometimes kill people. And you ask them, did you have any trouble killing people? And they're like, no, it was fine. It was just like eating scrambled eggs. It didn't bother me because their conscience has been seared. It's been destroyed. So here's what he's declaring is that conscience is something that God gives us. It's an inner testimony that demonstrates to us something about who God is in our very existence. Okay? Here's another example. If you've ever looked at the world and thought, now that's not right. That needs to be fixed. If you, in your family, look at activity. Maybe your mom or dad got divorced and as a result of that, you've been bummed by that and you've looked at it and thought, that's wrong. My dad should have never slept behind my mom's back and been divorced and left us without any child support. That's wrong. And the way to fix that is the feds should track dad down, throw him in jail and get him what he deserves. Alright? That's a judgment call. Alright? It is based upon this concept of justice. Now, every human being in the world understands something about justice. Now, we will all disagree on what is broken, and we will all disagree on what it takes to get it made, to be made right again. That's why we have Democrats and Republicans. Alright? They all can't agree on what the problems are and what it is that needs to be fixed. But the very fact that we all agree something's broken, and something needs to be fixed is attributed to the very character of God in us. My cat never sits around the house and thinks, this just ain't right. This just is not fair. Alright? Humans sit around and think like that. Because we have conscience, and conscience is part of this general way in which God reveals Himself to us. Alright? Thirdly, we are also aware of God through an old word through the people group that I love the most called the Puritans. They came up with this word providence. Alright? If there's ever any period of time on this planet I would like to live, I would love to live amongst the Puritans. I like their three-pointed hats. Right? It was just, they were cool. I like the Puritans. Alright? And the Puritans came up with this word called providence. Basically, it was a way in which to describe God's interaction with the world. God moves in the world. God takes care of the world. 
God is always at work in the world, unlike the God of deism or its stepbrother, uh, pantheism, the God that the Bible teaches that He is active in the world. Always active in the world. Here's an example. Acts chapter 14, verse 16. Paul is preaching. He says this, In past generations He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without a witness. In other words, God spoke. God communicated something about Himself. What was it that God communicated? He did good. God did good. He's a good God. Because He's good, He did good. And God does good. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Um, in the Old Testament also it says that God causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. The fact that God brings rain, unlike the way we oftentimes think about it in our culture, as being a curse because then it leaves weird spots upon my car, um, Back in that day, rain was a blessing. People lived in an agrarian culture and they needed rain to produce crops, to have food, to feed their little ones. Alright, it's the way it worked. So the fact that God caused it to rain on everybody, whether they were sinners or saints, whether they loved Jesus or they worshipped Satan, God brought rain to everybody. This is what theologians would call providence. God is good. Here's another example. We all have bodies. When we get sick, my daughter this past week was unbelievably sick. I don't think I've ever seen her this sick since she was really small. She was crying for almost three hours. My wife and I were trying to console her and she was having a hard night. She had a sore throat. Her eyes were both swollen. We thought she had pink eye in both eyes. It was very not fun. And we were trying to communicate the fact that God is even in control and work at this. And in, in this, today my daughter's much better. And the fact that she has a body that is healing itself is a very clear testimony of the fact that God is good and equips us with bodies that fight off diseases and heal themselves. Okay? That God is good. And one of the ways in which he demonstrates that and he speaks is through providence. The second way that we're going to be taking a look at this in which God speaks is what's called more in a fine-tuned sense is special revelation. God speaks in also more of a specialized type of a sense. And this is what we're going to focus now a little bit more on. The general way, all people hear God's voice in the general sense. And there's enough information that is spoken through creation, through providence, through our conscience to give us understanding that there's a God. He is to be worshipped. And He's good. And He's powerful. And so should we deny the existence of that God? It's definitely not for lack of evidence. It oftentimes has to do simply with the fact that we just don't want to submit to an external authority. Okay? So, special revelation is this. It's basically the means in which God reveals Himself in further, more intimate ways that we'll look at in the moment here, we'll ask the question, what is it that God reveals about Himself? But the way in which, first of all, God reveals Himself is first and foremost, predominantly through His own Son, Jesus. Now, theologians oftentimes have looked at several other things, the way in which God reveals Himself. We'll look at them. We'll see that the Bible is a way in which God speaks. Miraculous signs and wonders and events are ways in which God speaks. Through the preaching is another way in which God speaks. But all of these 
literally come through Jesus. Jesus is the final means by which God reveals Himself. Prophecy, miraculous events, preaching, the Bible, really all find their source in Christ. All of them. So the main predominant way by which God communicates His greatness, His love, His kindness, His desire to reclaim broken fellowship with you and I, is through Jesus. Here's the way He does this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-3 through says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our families by the prophets, but in these latter days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. What the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us is that God in times past did use prophets. He used men that wrote the Bible. He used our fathers. In this case, he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the ways through which God spoke. But in these last times, in the days in which the writer is writing, all the way to the times in which we're living in right now, God has continued to speak, but the sum total of everything that God would want to reveal about Himself has literally come through kind of the streamlined channel of Jesus. Jesus is the main means by which God has spoken. That's why John even starts out his Gospel in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. God speaks. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, jump down to that. He says, and the Word became manifested and tabernacled among us or lived among us. The picture is that the Word, Jesus, the sum total of all that God is and how God wants to reveal Himself was with God, but then God sends Him forth into the world so that now what we can know about God, we can see through Jesus. This is why we love Jesus. Okay, I hope we see that. This is why Jesus is important. He's not peripheral. He's not kind of marginalized. He's not just some guy that we go to when we've got difficult issues in our lives. Like, hey, how do I handle this circumstance? But Jesus is the sum total of the life of God revealed. He reveals all things that God wants for us to know about Himself through Jesus. Okay, that being said, the next way in which God reveals Himself is through miraculous signs, wonders, events, dreams, so on and so forth. We see this throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, Abraham basically begins his journey whereby God reveals Himself to him in a dream, in a vision, other particular ways like that. God speaks through these miraculous signs and wonders and Abraham moves. Another example is Moses. He's at this burning bush. Uh, it starts talking to him, which already is a little bit freaky. And then as he begins to dialogue with this burning bush, he comes to find out actually that it's a revelation of God. God is speaking Himself to Moses, revealing to Moses what He wants Moses to do. In this case, go be a deliverer. All right? Go set the children of Israel free. And so God speaks in that particular way. Another way, in a dream, when Mary was very young and she was betrothed to be married to Joseph, uh, when she was betrothed to be married to uh, Joseph, her husband, um, to be, that basically this uh, vision comes to her of an angel declaring that you will give birth to a child. and You'll call his name Jesus. Uh, also, that night, Joseph receives this dream. 
And the dream is basically a confirmation of exactly everything that Mary had. And so God speaks these particular ways. Um, my wife sometimes will be given these dreams. And sometimes they're just spot on. Several years ago, a good friend of ours that we know, she had this dream. She wakes up in the morning. She says, oh, Brian, I had this, this dream that was so tangible and so real. And she goes, I feel like I got to call um, this guy to let him know. He's the guy that we used to work with. And so she calls him up and says, hey, I just, for some reason, I just got to tell you, I've had this dream. I need to communicate it to you. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's about, what it's about but I just feel like I got to communicate it to you. And literally, within the next few weeks, everything that my wife had communicated to him in the dream literally happened. In fact, my wife just talked to him a couple days ago, and he basically reiterated, he says, hey, do you remember that time you had that dream? And, and she's like, yeah, of course. And he's like, that dream changed my life. It prepared me for what God was going to be taking me through, that I'm still going through this day. So God speaks through dreams. These are part of special revelation of things that God wants for us to know. That being said, it's important to understand that signs, wonders, miraculous events, even though these may be gateways by which God communicates, we're also told in the Bible to be careful about these ways because God has His prophets, Satan has His false prophets. God has teachers, Satan has false teachers. God oftentimes can give dreams and miraculous signs and wonders, and Satan and his demons can oftentimes fabricate these types of things. While my wife sometimes has these beautiful, glorious revelations of God, these divine dreams, sometimes I'm blessed with these horrifying uh, nightmares, and I guarantee they're satanic. We wake up in the morning, we discuss them, Sherry prays over me, and I try to go on with the rest of my day with, by forgetting them. All right? And so I know that in the same way God can speak through dreams, Satan can also speak through dreams as well. But these are means by which God does this. That's why we have to use discernment in understanding these things. The next way in which God oftentimes speaks is through the Scriptures. This is one of the most important ways in which God speaks is through the Word of God, the Scriptures. Now the word Scripture literally comes from the Latin word Scriptura, which means writings. Alright, this was a collection of books. I still remember when I was a very young Christian, I was around 16 years old, I had just barely got my driver's license, I went to a Tuesday night Bible study at a guy's house by the name of Mike Oxner. His daughter was my same age, she went to Huntington High, I went to the rival Oceanview High, and I went into the house for a Bible study, I didn't have a Bible, I'm all new at this thing, I didn't quite understand how to pray, how to read the Bible and all this type of stuff, and he says, hey, you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, I'm like, yeah. He gives me a Bible. It's one of these like little, like little Bibles, like 99 cent Bible. And I was so stoked. I still remember the day being given that Bible. He signed his name and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. I got my own Bible. I went home and I began to read it from Genesis. By the time I was making my way and I started kind of hitting like Leviticus or even prior to that, some of like the, uh, you know, and so and so beget. So-and-so, and so-and-so begets so-and-so. And that goes on for like 18 chapters. I, I'm like, this is really hard. Like, you got to read this to be a believer, man? This is tough. And I was just freaking out by it. So if you've ever read the Bible, that way you realize that it's not a book that you oftentimes read like a Tom Clancy novel, right? From beginning to end. It's a book that can be picked up and really just read anywhere. So if you're new to this and you're trying to figure out how do I do this, 
I would encourage you maybe start by reading the Gospel of John. It's a great place to start. Or the little epistle called 1 John. So, that being said, the Bible as we look at this is actually a collection of books. The Old Testament, there are 24 books that Jews actually have to this day in their library, 24 books, uh, broken down into the law, writings, prophets, and wisdom books. It's actually broken down into collections. So one of the things you'll find as well, it's not written chronologically. It wasn't put together chronologically. Alright? It was put together really in groupings. So it's a grouping, it's a, it's a bunch of books that are sort of a collection of groupings of books. In the New Testament, we have 42 books, 66 books in all. There's Gospels, letters, historical. Some of you read it and you've got uh, chapters and verses. The reality is that chapters and verses were not a part of the original manuscripts. These were added later for the same reason in which you guys have addresses on your house to help you figure out where to get to certain verses. They're supposed to be for our help. Okay. Um, so what we're going to look at as far as the Scriptures is this. What does the Bible tell us itself about itself? Like, What does it communicate about itself? So in other words, if the Bible says anything in it that communicates that this is not the Word of God, don't read this, it's a bad book, throw it away, then there should be no reason why Christians make a big deal about the Bible. However, if the Bible actually declares to the contrary that it is the Word of God, then we have to take that into consideration and live accordingly. So what does the Bible declare about itself? One of the things that the scholar says is this, is that the Scriptures are sufficient. They call it the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Proverbs chapter 30 says this, verse uh, 5, Every word of God proves true. It's true. And it goes on, and is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. He says, Do not add to these words, lest God rebuke you, and you be found a liar. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, John receives this word that says, Anybody that adds to this book, uh, his, these plagues will be added to him. If he takes away from this book, his name will be blotted out of the book of life, meaning he'll be killed. So the point is that the Bible declares of itself that it's a book that's not to be added to, not to be taken away from, and it's not to be destroyed, meaning not gets accidentally burned in a fire, you're going to go to hell, not at all. But the idea is that we're not to manipulate its content and to make it say things that it is not intending to declare or state. Okay? So the Bible declares in and of itself that it's sufficient. It is sufficient to reveal to us who God is. Back to the concept of revelation. It is sufficient enough as a means to communicate to us who God is. The second thing is this, is that Isaiah 55 verse 11 says that my word goes out from my mouth, God speaking. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed in the thing which I have sent it. So here's what scholars have oftentimes described as the effectiveness of Scripture, meaning that it is effective. It actually works. That when God says something, it will actually come to pass as true. It will happen. It's effective. God, what He says will actually come to pass just like He declared it. The last thing about this is that it's also truthful. Jesus, when He was praying to the Father, He says this, Father, sanctify them in Your truth. Your Word is true. So Jesus Himself even declares that the Bible is truthful. So if you look at the Bible and be like, it's not truthful. 
It's a book of lies. And really what's happening is that we've got contradictions between you and Jesus. And that's kind of a problem. Because if someone says, well, maybe Jesus didn't really know that much about the Bible. You know, we've got more scholarship today that's revealed to us a lot of information about the Bible that the Bible didn't have back then. Maybe Jesus just didn't know. Well, that's kind of a problem too, because Jesus claimed to be God. And if He's a God that has partial knowledge, then we've got a partial Savior, which means we're partially still in our sin, which means that we're pretty much just toast. Alright? The flip side is that Jesus knows what He's talking about. He is God. And when He makes statements like, the Word is truth, we have to just recognize that Jesus believes that the Word is truth. Therefore, as believers and followers of Christ, we also believe that the Word of God is truth. So this is what the Bible says about itself. The second thing is this. Who wrote the Bible? All right? Again, the Bible is actually authored by a number of different authors all over the place. From all sorts of different generations, different ages. And the reality is that what happens is that God speaks and these guys have written and under what the Bible terms or what we even call inspiration, they have written down these things. Here's the way Peter puts it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, guys didn't just sit around and think, hey, what would be a cool prophecy? What happens is that God actually gave them the prophecy. They didn't produce it. And it says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means that when they wrote or they spoke, they were speaking under the inspiration of God. This is where we get the concept inspiration. The word inspiration literally means God breathed. This is different inspiration from like watching Jane Austen movie, like that was inspiring. Or watching Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which I like to watch with my kids after church on Sunday nights, and to be like, that was inspiring. That moved me. This is a different type of inspiration, meaning that God breathed life and wisdom and knowledge into people. And they wrote. They weren't in a trance state. They weren't in sort of a catatonic type of a situation, but rather they were cognizant of what was going on around them. They were awake, and they wrote. Did they know everything that they were writing was going to be prophetic? Not all of them. Some of them just wrote, because God was leading them to write. Some of the things that they said had double meanings, meaning it had information for that day and age, but then it also had sort of a projection in the future for something else in the future. So, what the Bible says about those who wrote it is that really God wrote it, but God wrote it using human instruments. Okay? Here's the other thing is this. What can, you know, what, what about the New Testament? Alright? Sometimes people will say, okay, the Bible, the Old Testament, definitely, Jesus makes reference to the Old Testament as being Scripture. But if you realize something, is that the New Church, the, the New uh, Testament Church, really didn't even have a New Testament. Okay? So on the day of Pentecost, when they gather together and they worship, nobody had a New Testament Bible. Nobody had even leather-bound Bibles. All they had were the Old Testament Scriptures. For the most part, Paul, I mean, Paul wasn't even a Christian then, so none of the letters of Paul were even written. So what did they have to read when they gathered together to read the Bible? They read the Old Testament. So that's led some scholars to think, well, maybe the New Testament's not inspired, but the Old Testament was. That again presents a problem, because the New Testament is filled with statements and direct quotations from the Old Testament and many, many, many allusions to the Old Testament. So if you've ever read the book of Revelation and have been lost 
Like, what in the world is this book about? The writer, John, assumes that the readers have a vast knowledge of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is quoted probably more so in the book of Revelation than any other New Testament book. Okay, So these two books, old and new, are connected with each other, really with the main theme of God's redemptive acts climaxing through Jesus. All right? Here's another example. Um, I'm just going to use this one of Peter. Okay? Peter says this about Paul in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom that he had been given. So he's saying that Paul wrote these letters. You guys are circulating. You're reading them. These are like Ephesians, Thessalonians, Corinthians. These are the letters that we have in our Bibles. And they're reading these things. And he's saying, Paul wrote these letters to you, but they, they were written based upon wisdom and inspiration that God had given Paul to write these things. Verse 16, he says, as he does with all of his letters, when he speaks in them these matters. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand with ignorant, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they did with all of the other scriptures. There's what Peter's saying, is that Paul has written a lot of letters. And I love this, because if you've ever picked up your Bible and you're like, this stuff's hard. Have you ever done that? You're like, this is really hard stuff to read. Well, Peter picks up the Bible and he's like, this stuff's really, really hard. I don't understand this. What's the dude talking about? And Peter wrote the Bible. Alright? He's reading the Apostle Paul and he's like, scratching his head like, I don't get this. Well, if you have ever been confused, you're in good company. Because Peter, who wrote the Bible also is confused, however, recognizes the wisdom of God on it. You don't have to know everything in the Bible for it to be truthful or validated as inspired by God. The Bible just simply calls us to believe it and trust it. Okay? Peter says they twist what Paul says as they do with all the other Scriptures. Alright, so he literally takes the writings of Paul and says these are on par with Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah... That's what he's saying. As we wrap this up, the word that scholars have oftentimes used for this is the verbal plenary inspiration. Really long word. You guys have to know this in order to be a Christian. Just kidding. You don't even have to remember this. You'll forget it. That's okay. I don't expect you to. But one thing I do want you to know is that this is kind of also termed just a shorthand word, meaning inspiration or the infallibility of the Scriptures. We believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. That's what that means. It means that the Bible is, not a, is a book that does not just simply contain thoughts about God, but it actually is a book that contains the Word of God. It is the Word of God. Not just con- a container for it, but it is in its whole the Word of God. Jesus put it this way. Not one jot or one tittle will pass away until all these things are fulfilled. So you're like, what's a jot and what's a tittle? A jot and a tittle is equivalent to our dotting of an I and crossing of a T. Right? If you've ever read, seen the Hebrew al- uh, alphabet, you see like there's these little funky dots and little things all over. Th- those are jots and tittles. And Jesus says, not one placement of a dotted I will pass away until I complete everything. So in Jesus' mind, the whole Bible 
is considered to be part of this revelation of who God is. All right, leads us to this very last thing. We're almost done here. Is the preaching of the gospel. This is another primary means by which God reveals himself. Again, all of these things come through Jesus. So we've seen the word of God as being a means by which God speaks. Signs, wonders, and miracles as being a means by which God speaks through special revelation. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God wants us to know about himself. And then finally, the preaching of the gospel is essential. Um, as I was reading through this and trying to understand this, I found this to be one of the most important ones. If you haven't noticed, Jesus is not here in body form today. He has given us His Spirit, and His Spirit lives inside of us, so His message continues through the church. We're to communicate the Word of God, communicate this, and the beauty is, that's why the language of the New Testament exists. The church is the body of Christ. Do you understand that? We have to picture this because Jesus is not here in physical form, but He is here in spiritual form. And if there is a physical body that Jesus has on this planet, it's you and me. So we speak for Jesus. We proclaim Jesus. Christianity really should be about Jesus. Your marriages should be centered on Jesus. How you raise your kids should have Jesus somewhere in there. The way you run your business, the way you treat your employees, the way you talk about your boss, the way that you study in school, all of these things are about Jesus. Okay? The Gospel and the preaching of the Gospel is the way in today's age that God continues to speak for His ways. Here's a few examples of this. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to, have, to everyone who believes. Okay? He goes on, he says, for to the Jew first and then also the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed. Okay? Get the word reveal. God reveals His righteousness. How? Through the preaching of the Gospel. So Paul says. Here's the last one I want to read. I want to finish on this one. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says this, How shall they call upon Him whom they have not believed? Meaning that there's a lot of people in this world that don't believe in Jesus. They don't know God. They're not going to believe in God unless they know who He is, unless there's some sort of revelation given to them, imparted to them, to open their eyes to help them to believe. So here's what he says. How shall they call upon Him if they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? So they can't believe in a God they've never heard about, they've never seen, it's never been revealed to them. And then he says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Paul's answer and solution to this is the way that people believe, the way that people see the beauty of God is by the preaching of the Gospel. Then he goes on and he finishes, and how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who preach the good news. Guys, the picture is this. Is that God's means in this day and age in which we live of communicating Himself is through the preaching of the Gospel. In the day and age in which we live, the church in America today, I believe, for the most part, has very weak and anemic and even... Horribly sad pulpits. Here's why. Because we do live in a culture and there's so much going on around our lives that we have massive felt 
needs. All of us, we have felt needs. Some of us are in here today, you're in a fight with your wife, right? The kids are acting up because they're all jacked up a Mountain Dew and they're cussing you out. You know how to deal with that, right? Kids are not sleeping through the night. You're frustrated by that. You just lost your job at Blimpies. You know, your Toyota Corolla broke down. You're like, gosh, life stinks. You just lost your house. Everything's falling down around you. The deck out back's rotten. You fell through it. I mean, your life is literally crumbling apart. You can't get a haircut because it costs 40 bucks. You know, I mean, life is hard. Right? And so what happens today in America is pastors are like, man, these people come to church and they're all messed up and their lives are hard. And, you know, I've got to preach to that. So here's what happens. Is American pastors look at this and say, we've got to preach to these felt needs because I can't talk to them about theology, the Bible, Jesus, all this, when the fact is that their kids are like, getting F's in school and they're about to you know, lose their career and all this other... So I will preach a series for the next six weeks on how to you know, get a better job or how to be a better husband or how to somehow like succeed and live your best life at this moment. All these big concepts that are really nothing more than preaching to felt needs. Okay, so here's the problem. Not that we don't have felt needs, and not that those felt needs need to be addressed, but the problem comes is what happens is when there's a consistency of only preaching to felt needs, the gospel gets sidelined. And I just read you a handful of scriptures that declare that the way that we see God is through the gospel. Do you understand that? And I want to make an argument and say that the greatest need that we have in our life is not new tires on our forerunner and is not cheaper gas, is not less taxes, and it's not a refi on your house. It's we need God. You understand that? We need God. God is what we need. He's the Gospel. He is the good news. Otherwise, what happens is the preaching becomes nothing more than good advice rather than the good news. The pulpit becomes castracized. It's just horrible. It's not what it should be. And God is not exalted and we're not joyful. You guys, all I'm saying is this, is that we have a God that is so good, so loving, that He calls us and reveals Himself to us so that we would respond and come to Him. Okay? Last thing, I'm going to have Chris come out right now, and we're going to finish up and respond to the Lord in worship. But I want to just read you a summary of what has God revealed to us through speaking. All right? First of which is God has revealed Himself. God reveals Himself. When God speaks, He reveals Himself. But make sure you understand this. God is a treasure. Think of God revealing Himself as a treasure. And we're treasure seekers, aren't we? But the problem is that we're a little bit confused about what we consider treasures, right? Okay? Some of us think it's a really good career. Some of us think it's a really nice house on San Luis Drive, right? We're a little bit confused about what we think a treasure is, but the gospel breaks through and says, no, 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 the, the good news, the treasure is God. 
When God speaks, He reveals not only that, but He reveals His kingdom. That not only is He a king, He's a treasure who gives Himself to His creation, but He also has a kingdom. All things belong to God. He has a kingdom He calls us to. He reveals to us His covenant. God reveals to us the fact that God is the one that steps out first and says, hey, let's make this right. Do you know that? The Bible says that none of us seek after God. None. Not one. So this whole idea of like, well, we've got to preach to seekers. The reality is, is nobody's a seeker. We're seeking after ourselves. We're not seeking after the infinite treasure that lies within a celestial city like Bunyan talks about. We're not seeking after that. But the reality of the Gospel is God comes down into our lives and calls us. That's the beauty. God reveals Himself. We are in this dark room and God not only opens our eyes, but He also turns on the lights. And we see that He's a treasure. Okay? God also reveals to us His law. So we realize, man, I failed. God has these standards. He has this righteousness that I have not met up to. But then finally, He reveals His salvation. And this has been a constant, ongoing revelation from the very beginning. It could have been a salvation from the Egyptians. God calls the children of Israel and says, I'm going to pull you out of the Egyptians. Or it could have been like the Babylonians. But ultimately, it's God's revelation to us that we are in bondage to sin, death, and if we don't turn, judgment. In God's revelation, when God speaks, is to say, I want to save you from that. I want to save you from that. I want to take you out of the fires that will one day consume you. I hope we understand that God is a gracious, loving God who speaks because He's a loving community that calls us, who have broken covenant with Him, who have sinned. We belittled Him. We've turned. We've gone our own way. We've, we've literally worshipped worthless things over the infinite value and worth of God. And yet God still seeks. God still reveals. If you're here today, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, then hear and see and respond and worship and love. 